Today's episode is sponsored by World Breakers, Advent of the Kennet, a two-player card game set in alternate 13th century Asia. You are a world breaker, an individual who can harness the mysterious substance Mythium to magnify your natural talents. Over the course of the game, you will recruit followers to control the board and develop locations to gain power. Reach 10 power to win the game, forever reshaping history. The game box includes multiple game modes such as pre-constructed decks, drafting, and a solo campaign. So be sure to check out World Breakers on Kickstarter right now. And if you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one, and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about the design process of Mr. Phil Walker Harding, a guy that has designed a ton of games in general, but also a ton of games that are very highly rated, that have sold a bunch of copies that people are playing all the time. One of my favorite designers, personally. So, Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's really good to be here. I uh, listened to the show, so it's really nice to be on it. Yeah, that's great. I love to hear it when people that I respect and I you know, look up to in a lot of ways as far as design and the publishing uh, or the industry and, and different things are, are also listeners of the show. It's, it's kind of crazy. Um, it's, it'd be like if I ran a movie podcast and Steven Spielberg was like, oh, yeah, I listen to your show. It's like, oh, oh, that's, oh OK, cool. <laughs> and so it's always cool to hear and really excited that you're here. Um, just pumped to get into your brain, you know, just kind of peel back the layers and understand how do you design games because you've done so many and so many that have have done really well and that people are are drawn to and continue to play year after year after year. But before we get into like the specifics of your process and some of your games in particular, tell me who you are, how you got into game design in general, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, I, you know, like a lot of us grew up playing kind of mass market board games at home with the family and, you know, really enjoyed them, thought they were great. Um, but for whatever reason, from a very young age, I also started making my own. Uh, so just sort of like as fun little craft projects, I guess, me and my brother and my cousin would uh, just fool around with paper and pencils and, and make games. Um, you know, nothing groundbreaking, just like, you know, sillier versions of Monopoly and stuff like that. Uh, but I guess it was always just in my blood a little bit. Um, then I kind of got back into games sort of in my early 20s when I discovered, you know, all the stuff coming out of Germany, so Catan and Carcassonne, and, and um, instantly, as soon as I played those games, I was just, you know, back in. And I was like, this is what I always wanted board gaming to be, and it never quite delivered in a way. Um, and so as soon as I played those two games, and also Lost Cities was one of the first games I played, I instantly was like, oh, like, 
straight away my design brain snapped back on and I was thinking of variants and, and little things. I remember I, I, after playing Lost Cities, I went away and tried to make a, a four-player version of it because it's only for two players. Um, yeah, so it was just sort of there dormant, I guess. And um, pretty soon after I got back into modern games, I just decided, well, I'm going to start making some. And it was just a bit of a hobby for a while, um, just making my own little prototypes. Very cool. And like I mentioned in the intro, you've designed some really highly rated games. Uh, a few of those are Sushi Go, Baron Park, Gizmos, the Adventure Games series, Imhotep. I think you have 67 entries on Board Game Geek. And so you've done a lot of a lot of stuff. You, you've designed a lot of different themes. You've used a lot of different mechanisms. It, you're, you're a guy that's not just pigeonholed into, oh, yeah, he does, you know, really good at uh, engine building games, or he does really good two-player games. It's like, no, Phil does everything. Like It's almost like you have an idea and then you can bring it to life no matter what the the box is that you're you're going to put that game into. And so let's let's talk about that. When when you have ideas, like let's talk about just your general design process from the idea stage. Tell me tell me about that. Where do you get your ideas from? You know, how do you start working on a game right there from ground zero? Yeah, I I mean I guess this has sort of changed over time. Like I think when you start designing, you sort of have a few really specific kind of themes uh, or maybe mechanisms that you want to tackle. So uh, maybe that's the starting point when you, when you are earlier on in your design career, and it was for me. Um, so certainly like Imhotep came out of, I want to make a game about uh, how they built the pyramids, you know, and that was just what I started with and that was where I went. But I find it's kind of shifted. And now most of my ideas come out of, um, an experience of playing games, like other published games. And it's usually in playing new games and just exploring what's out there uh, that I note an experience in a game that was either really great or maybe really lacking. And I just always find that it's analyzing those experiences that seems to trigger an idea. So this moment of a game was incredibly fun. Like, what was it that generated that fun? Or this part of the game just fell flat. What, why didn't it work? I often find it's analyzing those little moments of play now that spins me off into an idea. Like, oh, I could fix it this way. Or, oh, I could turn that into an entire game in its own. Or something like that. So for me at the moment, yeah, it's often just playing games and sort of having these little experiences and wanting to kind of dive into the, yeah, what's going on behind that experience. Very cool. Now, I've talked to some designers on the show, and they talk about how when they're just starting out, they'll write down a bunch of ideas. Some some people write down like a mission statement for the game, but they'll, they'll start basically kind of creating the parameters that they want the game to live inside, you know, as far as like ideas about the mechanism, ideas the way, about the way the theme is going to mesh with mechanisms, idea about ideas about the experience, things like that. Do you do, do you do anything like that or is it a little bit more free form? I, I, I don't go so far as to kind of give myself a written set of parameters and mission statements. Um, but I think the more you design, the more you sort of do that internally as you begin. So um, for me, I think it's more in terms of audience and maybe publisher. So when a game's starting to take shape quite quickly, I'll think, okay, what's the audience? Like, what's the age range? Uh, what's the length of this game going to be? And um, then quite quickly I go, to, okay, well, 
uh, I want to imagine the finished product is it the sort of game that you know Game Right might put out for fifteen bucks in a little tin, or is it something that a bigger German kind of publisher of family weight euros with a big box? You know, where does it fit in the kind of in kind of the market? And so quite quickly, I guess I go towards thinking about audience, publisher, and yeah, maybe like sometimes I try and come up with a little bit of a one sentence pitch for the game, like um, this is what I want this game to achieve. This is what I hope people would say about it once it's out. Like, oh, you've got to play this game. It's the, da, 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 da. you know, that's the kind of sentence I'll have in my head. Um, but yeah, I, I find it kind of comes quite naturally at the start of the process for me. But I do think it's really important to, to in some way, have that direction kind of laid out. Gotcha. And I think it's so smart to begin with a publisher in mind, even if it's not going to turn out to be that specific publisher in the end, just to have an idea about the direction that you're going in, as opposed to, okay, I've designed a game. Now, which publisher would it fit with? It's like, no, I have an idea already about which kind of publishers would be interested in this game right there from the beginning. And so then you can adjust your design process. And and like you're saying, is this going to be a $10, $15 game in a 10, or is it going to be a $70 game in a giant box? Like that's going to change a lot about the design process. So I think that's, that's super smart. Um, now, when it comes to like moving to the next stage, so you had an idea, maybe you've written some ideas down, maybe you kind of percolated for some days about how a game could work and all that. Tell me what's next. I, I know some designers, they get to a prototype immediately. Let me just go ahead and start throwing something on the table. Some people take a lot more time and they want to fully flesh out some things and then do a prototype. Tell me about your process. Yeah, for me, the first thing I do is I have a notebook. And um, the first thing I do is I kind of map a bit of the game out on paper. So I'll just jot down a few key points, I'll draw a few components, I'll maybe start cataloging what the components might need to be, um, how many of each thing there could be in the game. Um, just sort of, yeah, doing a bit of a overview of just like, here's, here's where my brain is at on this game. Because I often find just the, that process of writing it all down, drawing a few elements, uh, really helps you do that initial fleshing out. Um, so sometimes it almost feels like, with a quite simple game, sometimes I almost feel like I've done the first prototype just by doing that, because there's quite a lot you can kind of imagine and visualize as you as you do your own notes. Um, I know not everyone maybe uh, thinks that way and can work that way in a notebook, but it works for me. And yeah, that often solves some of those initial design questions. It's like, well, hang on a second, I've got this, I've got this idea, but how would it actually fit into a deck of cards? Or I've got this idea, but how would it actually work for more than two players? And, you know, questions like that often start bubbling to the surface in notes form for me. Um, but then really, really quickly after, after that phase, I'll do a really rough prototype because, um, yeah, I want to get it to the table as quickly as possible because so many things... Um, you know, flop on the first prototype play that you want to get there as quick as you can because, you know, there's been times when I've spent, you know, weeks dreaming of this amazing game and writing all these notes and even looking for uh, clip art I could use and all this stuff. And then you get it to the table and you're like, oh, this is fundamentally flawed. Uh, this is not going to work. So, yeah, I get to that first really rough prototype really quick because um, I just need to see if it's going to pass that kind of first hurdle. Yeah, it's amazing how perfect the game always is in your head. And then you get that reality check on that first first play test. Even if it's just by yourself, you're like, oh, wow, this 
this works so much better in my brain, but, but I'm with you as far as like using the notebook and getting the ideas out there because it just seems like once you have it written down either on paper or on your computer, but once you can like look at ideas and kind of see them in real space and not just floating around your head, it, it just seems like more ideas come to mind and you can kind of see where, okay, I don't, I don't think those numbers are actually going to work or I don't think that's actually going to fit the way I think. But anyway, just something about getting it out into the world uh, gives you more ideas and gives you a, a new angle to see things. And so, yeah, that's one thing I highly recommend to new designers. It's like write stuff down, either using a note, a notebook or something on your computer, uh, Evernote or something like that, or just actual little, little journal you carry around in your pocket. Because again, in your head, it's perfect. It's the best game ever made since Monopoly. But once it actually gets into the real world on paper and then especially in prototype form, man, is a huge, huge difference there. And so let's, uh, let's talk about that next stage. Do you do a lot of playtesting at first just by yourself or do you have a friend or some other folks that you kind of bring in early on or tell me about your playtesting, you know, different stages? Yeah, I get the impression I do a lot more solo playtesting than a lot of designers. Um, and uh, I think that's probably partly because my games are usually quite simple and not often, you know, about... Uh, sort of very above the table player interaction. So they're often quite testable solo, at least to get a lot of the little bugs ironed out. So yeah, my first phase of prototype testing would be uh, just solo testing. So just playing the role of all the characters or all, all the players in the game and playing through a bunch of games. Um, that doesn't tell you if it's a good game, but it does tell you if it's like not a bad game. <laughs> like you need people playing, you need other humans playing it to know if it's fun. But you can instantly, I find, rule out a bunch of stuff from solo testing. Um, certain, and, and also find problems early, you know. So uh, things like these numbers are just way off or uh, there's not enough of this component or this element just doesn't work, this element just isn't interesting, uh, quite often these big negatives arise, I find, from solo testing, and you can start addressing them straight away. Um, yeah, so that's something I do quite a lot of, and I think um, your brain, you slowly learn how to do it better, maybe. Like, I think when I first started out, I didn't really enjoy solo testing, and I found it a bit of a drag. But the more you do it, the more you kind of, I think, hone that skill and start to be get really alert at what to look for and... Um, what bits need fixing because ideally I don't like to take a prototype to the table with other people until I at least have some, you know, some confidence that it's going to be worth exploring with them. Um, but again, this pertains to my style. So there are some types of games which you can't play their solo. There are some types of games which, you know, you just need other people interacting to get any sense of how they'll play. But, um, for my style, I find solo testing is a really good kind of first barrier to get through. Yeah, I completely agree. It's so helpful to just be able to make sure the game works, to, to make sure that you're going to sit down and play it with other human beings at some point, and it's not just going to be so broken that they're like, oh, what are we doing here? Like, you're wasting our time. But then speaking of time, one of the things I've learned over the years is to figure out, okay, how long do certain aspects of the game take? For instance, uh, a while back, I was working on a game that had combat as a big part of the game, but I wanted the individual battles to take two or three minutes max because I didn't want other players just sitting there and waiting. And it's like, okay, this is not fun. Just watching y'all play and me just sitting over here. And so I was like two minutes or so and, uh, and then get right back into the rest of the game. But when I play tested it solo, 
I found that that battle was taking like eight minutes. And I was thinking, oh man, if it's taking me eight minutes, when I have all of the ideas in my head, I know exactly how this game works. I know all the the ratios and the variables. I know all these things and it's taking me eight minutes. That means it's going to take like a regular person who's never seen this game before 10 minutes, 12 minutes to play a battle that I want to last two or three minutes. And so you start thinking through, okay, what's the time? And and I, I recommend people like actually time yourself time your turns time battles time how long it takes you to read the the story that you know that's in your adventure game whatever it is time it and then is that line up with the experience is that line up with fun you know if it's taking too long then your ratio of time to fun might be a little bit off and uh, so yeah i think solo uh, playtesting early on especially is super helpful but then as you go anytime you want to introduce something new you know just playing around by yourself before you waste other people's time <laughs> but let's talk about other people tell me about your playtesting process with others so when do you know to move away from solo testing into testing with other people? How have you learned? You know, what have you learned over the years as far as how to do it effectively? Any of that? Yeah, it is a, it's a hard moment to know when it's ready to try. But generally, it's, it's just when the solo testing process has kind of gotten to that place of like, okay, it, it works. <laughs> it's like it seems to be functioning. And um, I've ironed out a few things. It's hard to know exactly, but generally when I just feel comfortable with that, like you say, um, I don't want to put something on the table in front of people who are giving me their time and it's just completely flopped. So when I feel some confidence with that, um, I'll make a slightly nicer prototype and um, play with some people. So most, a lot of the people I play with generally are quite casual gamers. It's just, you know, the people I know and the sort of gamers I play with. And I'm... I'm sure that's affected my style too, because that's just the games I play the most of is more casual, quicker games. But um, yeah, so I have a few different groups of people that I will try it with. Um, my brother and my cousin, who I sort of grew up playing games with, they're, they're very kind of in a circle kind of testers, I suppose. Uh, also my wife, Meredith, someone I test with. And um, I also often organize, like, you know, specific playtesting nights and I have kind of a pool of people I'll invite over for dinner and I'll, I'll buy them dinner and then we'll play a whole bunch of games. So I do that regularly. So there's a few different ways um, I approach it. And if I'm ever visiting a game group or something, I'll often take a prototype along or a convention is another good place. Um, so there's a whole lot of different ways. Um, but, um, but yeah, but it's really just about uh, getting the game in, like you said before, getting into the real world and seeing what happens when it's not just my brain tinkering with it, but it's four brains. And uh, it's always surprising to see what happens uh, because sometimes it's just very unpredictable. So it's also an important step to get to this phase quite quickly uh, because you don't want to have created the ultimate solo game <laughs> and then no one else wants to play with you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, unless you're designing a solo game, and in that case, maybe maybe it's good. Uh, All right, so speaking of playtesting, at what point do you know or or do you have, like, any ideas as as far as, like, tangible ways that you can know when to walk away versus when to persevere? You know, is it during playtesting? Is is it during different parts of the design process? Like, a lot of people, they struggle. It's like, okay, I don't know whether this game is good enough to keep going or should I scrap it and try something else? So tell me about your process for figuring that out. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm quite quick to scrap. Um, and I think that's increased over time. Like I think you develop a sense of when 
the fundamental core of the game isn't quite there. So you get the sense that I could I could tinker around the edges of this game for a month and it would help a little bit, but I just know something about the central mechanisms is not quite there yet. Um, and so when I get that sense, I'm very quick to just pull the plug, put it aside, pop it in the box, uh, take some notes and just leave it for later. Um, I think when I started out, I found that a harder call to make. Firstly, because you have less time to design. So you, you know, really are only focusing on one or two things at a time and you really want them to work because you're starting out and you really push, push really hard, even if something's not quite there. Um, and you know, sometimes you do get over that hump and you do figure it out. Um, but I've just often found pulling the plug earlier rather than later often works out better because often taking a break from a design is exactly what you need to figure it out. So not thinking about it for a few months and then returning helps. So I'm pretty quick uh, to put something aside and then jump into the next idea and uh, hope it's the one that just comes together uh, in, a, in a quicker way. So um, yeah, but it is a hard moment to know when there's just a few elements around the edges that are causing the problem or if the game is kind of flawed in a bigger way. It is hard to know. But I think I rely a little bit on watching playtesters and and if they are like incredibly engaged but a little frustrated with how the game plays out, I think that looks different to, to playtesters who just aren't engaged, who aren't actually just enjoying the core kind of loop of the gameplay and they're just like, oh, yeah, this kind of, it's okay. Versus oh, this is interesting, but oh, I can't do what I want. Or this is interesting, but it didn't end very well. Like to me, that's a slightly different emotion to look for in your players. And I think, yeah, if you get the sense that they're enjoying it, um, and especially if they ask to play it again themselves, I would say there's probably something there to keep going for. Uh, but when you just get that sense that, you know, that there's very little fun <laughs> coming out of the prototype, and being communicated to the players. If I feel like that's the barrier, I, I, I guess I'm more likely to consider putting it aside. Gotcha. All right. So you've got a game, you've been playtesting it for a while. At what point do you know it's ready to pitch to publishers? Is there a place where, like you're saying, you're watching playtesters and, and you're seeing their experience, or is it a place where you're just not making any new changes? But how do you know when it's time to start reaching out and uh, pitching the game? Yes, another hard one. And I think you do you do grow in that awareness. Like the more games you have published, the more you start to get an inner feeling for this is pitchable, like this is ready to pitch because you've been through the process before. Um, but I think one thing is, yeah, playtesters requesting it, playtesters enjoying it and just playing it as they would a finished game and not then kind of, you know, offering critique and change. Um, that's obviously one fine because people are playing it as if it's finished. So that's really helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can just keep making changes. You can just keep iterating. You can just keep improving. Uh, there's kind of no, no one's going to tell you this is done, uh, even with a really simple game. There's always the, the feeling in the back of your mind, what if I just tried this? Or what if I tweak this? So you do need to make a call at some point. Um, but I do think that feeling that this game is in a state where I've seen players 
completely enjoy a game of it as it is. Um, and there weren't any hiccups, there weren't any barriers, there weren't any kind of major moments of, of disconnection or major moments of losing of interest. I think when that's happened, I think you're pretty good to pick because, you know, there'll always be 10 or 15% or 20% uh, of, of changes that will happen in development with a publisher usually. Like there is, that process can still go on. Uh, but I think you need to have a game that's fully formed as a, as a fun activity. Um, as it is. That's the feeling I kind of am waiting for. Yeah, I remember talking to Rob Davio about this a few years ago at this point and asked him a very similar question. like, hey, how do you know when a game is done? And he said, around the time that you have to send it off to the publisher and they won't let you make any more changes. He's like, <laughs> it's the same thing. You can just keep doing this forever. You know, you can keep tweaking numbers, you can keep coming up with new ideas and all that. And he's like, ah, you know, maybe save that for some expansions or something like that. But, you know, as a designer, that's it's kind of always going to be the case. And I think that's one thing that makes it really hard for people who design and publish their own games because they don't necessarily have that hard deadline of a publisher saying, hey, I need it by this date to be able to send it off to the factory and, and all that kind of thing. Or, and so I think that could be a real challenge for people who do their own Kickstarters and, and things like that. And so it's, sometimes it's nice to have an outside person that can go, hey, stop it. <laughs> just just let it go. It's good. It's good to go. You know, And uh, you, you got to kind of send it out into the world eventually. Uh, yeah. All right. So anything else just from a general standpoint, as far as game design, I want to get into some of your specific games here in just a second. But anything else you want to kind of leave listeners with anything you've learned, any little, you know, top three things to think about, anything like that? I think, well, I think a, a thing, something I often um, say to new designers is how valuable it is to have your game released and in the world. And I don't mean by a publisher even. I just mean have people playing your game out there. Um, there are lots of ways to get a game in front of people uh, that don't require a massive contract with a huge publisher. And uh, when I when I first started, um, I self-produced um, handmade editions of my game and uh, gave them to people and sold them online and things. And it was pretty, you know, it was a bit of a shoddy start, I guess. But it was so, I grew so much from having all these strangers play my game and give feedback and respond, not as friends or, or well wishes or anything, just people playing the game. And I know uh, you can get a similar experience from doing, you know, Game Crafter, Pick on Demand games or Pick and Play games, uh, which are, I think, a really exciting part of the hobby at the moment. Just having your game out. Um, you just seem to learn 10 times as much as you do from just playtesting it and developing it yourself. So the quicker you can find a way to just have your game in front of people, um, I think it's just a really important part of the process to learn from actually releasing something. So that's a tip I often give. Um, and the other thing I think is great as you go on in your design career to think about is sort of a bit like think about your philosophy of design in a way. Um, think about your style, think about what you want to bring to the hobby and the design community. Like what sort of game can you make that isn't really being made? Or what sort of game can you make that you make the best, you know? What is it that you can offer? Uh, it's really easy when you start out to just, you know, want to have a few games that work, want to get them published, and, and, and that's what motivates you at the beginning. But at some point you need to kind of go, okay, well, what, are, what am I trying to do here with these games? You know, it's not make a lot of money. I mean, that's something that, that that rarely happens early on. 
in a design career, if ever, what is it I'm trying to do? What am I trying to bring to the hobby? Uh, what are my games trying to achieve? You know, am I trying to uh, make the crunchiest Euro of all time? Am I trying to make something that a five-year-old could play with a 95-year-old? Am I trying to make something um, that a particular type of person with a particular type of interest is really going to get into? Um, I'm always drawn to designers that seem to have a bit of a philosophy, even if I don't quite click with it. This is really interesting to see uh, their own style and their own take on on gameplay. So, yeah, I think if you can think of it, it's a bit it's a bit lofty and highfalutin, but if you can start thinking of yourselves like, yeah, as a designer, and what is it you want to to bring into the world through your designs, I think that's a really good exercise as well. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to look at things. Uh, I know I remember when I was growing up and playing football, uh, you have this idea, this concept of take what the defense gives you. You know, if they're giving you the run, then run the ball. If they're giving you the pass, throw the ball. If they're giving you the deep pass, throw it deep. You know, whatever the defense does, make them wrong. <laughs> you know, and so I, I, I've brought the same concept into creativity. It's like, okay, take what the defense gives you and, and maybe whatever you're drawn to, just lean into that. Whatever you're really good at, lean into that as opposed to trying to force yourself into some other box or somebody else's expectations or something like that. No, like what is the defense giving you? And then, and then just take that. And so I think that's a, a really smart way to, uh, to look at designing board games. And then going back to what you were saying just a moment ago, as far as like just getting stuff out into the world, I think one of the main things people struggle with is the, obviously the fear of failure and also the fear of rejection, putting something out into the world that they've spent a ton of time on and put a lot of effort and energy into that is their little you know baby that they're putting out into the world and then it not doing well or people not understanding it or people criticizing it and all that. And unfortunately, the really the only real way to overcome that fear is to do it and experience it, you know, to learn that the fear of failure, the fear of rejection uh, is not is not deadly. You know, it's, it's not going to kill you when someone's like, hey, I don't like this or hey, I don't get it or hey, this sucks. Like it's it's not deadly, but it does kind of help you build up. I don't know if a callous is the right word. I don't know if you want to be calloused towards other people's feedback and things like that, but at least to realize that when you put stuff out into the world, it's going to be fine no matter what happens. And then you get a little more comfortable, you get a little more confident, and then you can do it more and more and then you get better and better. And so I think that's really good advice is just find a way to get things out into the world. Even if it's just on social media and posting ideas on Facebook and saying, Hey, here's my prototype. Here's the game that I'm working on. Check it out. I think even just small things like that, because also people can come in and encourage you. They can say, Hey, that looks really cool. Or they can ask interesting questions and maybe from angles about things you hadn't thought about. And so I think, yeah, that's, that's excellent uh, advice. And so, okay, that's, that's really good. I, I think designers have a lot to learn from from all of those things. And so let's dive into maybe some more specifics, maybe almost using your games as case studies. And uh, let's, first of all, let's start off with Sushi Go. Now, one thing I love about your games, you have such a range when it comes to theme, when it comes to mechanism. And so talk to me, one, a little bit about that, like where you, you get your ideas as far as themes and mechanisms and meshing them together, and then how it applies to Sushi Go. Like where you at a sushi restaurant one night, you're like, you know what, I'm going to make a game that's going to sell a million copies about sushi. <laughs> so like, tell me about that. Uh, no, that did not happen. Uh, I was eating a lot of sushi at the time, though. Um, so what happened with Sushi Go was I was playing... Uh, Fairy Tale, which is a, a Japanese card game that came out in 2007 or 8. Uh, and Seven Wonders had just came out, come out. And um, I loved the drafting mechanism of choosing one card from your hand and passing it on. It just was inherently fun to me. Um, and having cards go around the table 
and remembering kind of what was in each hand, but not exactly, and then getting the surprise of the hand coming back to you. It just totally clicked with me as a mechanism. And um, I really enjoyed both games, but I hadn't had too much success introducing them to people. Uh, Seven Wonders, I found, for really casual gamers, the upfront teaching was just pretty heavy. And for whatever reason, fairy tale, although it's quite simple, yeah, there's something just a little inscrutable about the gameplay and the graphic design, and it never quite clicked with people like I'd hoped when in my playgroup. So I just had in my head, I want to do a drafting game that is so simple and accessible. Uh, everyone who didn't, you know, like those two games or, or click with those two games would be able to learn really quickly and play. And and one that only was about drafting. So it wasn't drafting and then also economy and then a bit of resource management, no, just the drafting, you know, that's, that's what I sort of had in my head. Um, so that was the initial kind of spark of the idea. And um, really quickly, like I'm making my first prototype and I have to kind of pick, okay, well, what are these cards? Like what do they represent beyond this point? And the one of the first things I remember asking myself is, okay, well, thematically what goes around a table like what goes around and around and around and maybe because i'd recently had sushi i thought of a sushi train conveyor belt i thought oh yeah thing that kind of goes around <laughs> so yeah i just sort of quite quickly landed on the sushi team and um it just clicked it's one of those moments where um theme and mechanism just make a lot of sense together and kind of add to the fun factor so that was that was pretty cool and that happened quite early. So yeah, so the first prototype I took to other people sort of had the, the theme not too different to, to how it is now. Uh, so that, that's how it all started. Gotcha. And then it gets out into the market. It does really well, sold a lot of copies. And so I'm assuming at that point, GameRight is like, okay, how do we capitalize on this? And so they come back to you and they say, hey, can you make some other versions? Because eventually we get Sushi Go Party and we get Sushi Roll, which are all you know, right there in the same universe as far as, as far as the art and everything else is concerned. And so tell me tell me about that. Was that GameRight coming to you or did you have ideas for those other games and go to them? So quite quickly after Sushi Go was doing well, GameRight came to me with the idea for a dice game. Um, so they, they had a little line of dice games and, um, they were like, oh, we'd be interested in a sushi go dice game. And I was like, oh, great. That was one of the first times a publisher had asked me for something, you know, <laughs> instead of me asking them. So I was like, oh, great. So I kind of went to work making this game and, um, I, I sent them a few versions and we tried to make it work and it was okay, but it just didn't, you know, it just didn't totally excited so we kind of put it aside and then that would have been uh that would be not long after sushi go came out and it took me like another three years to kind of land on the concept for sushi roll um so i was constantly you know just noodling with this idea of a dice game version and yeah i like fully finished two or three versions you know <laughs> and, and they just weren't that interesting um i just i think dice is a bit of an achilles heel for me so, yeah, so it took a long time. And eventually I landed on the idea of like, oh, obviously we need to be passing the dice around the table, just like the cards. And as soon as I landed on that concept and convinced Game Light that having 30 massive custom dice in the game was doable, uh, yeah, they became interested again and we started talking. So that was their, they started that, but it took years to kind of land. And Sushi Go Party 
was sort of me going to them and sort of saying, you know, they were vaguely interested in another product. Um, and I knew the dice game had come up and I thought, oh, you know, I'd really like to do a sequel or an expansion um, or maybe a board game version of Sushi Go. Like all three of those ideas were in my head as like, this could be a cool sequel. And in the end, I, I kind of did them all in one product in a way. So I thought, you know, an ex and something that feels like an expansion, but also its own thing and feels bigger, kind of felt like the next big step. And I started coming up, up with all these ideas for different Sushi Go cards. And, uh, you know, it was, in hindsight, it was quite an ambitious project to sort of say, you know, I'm going to triple the content of the game and put it in a big box and say, hey, game right, here's the next thing, you know. But I was just in that, in that kind of mode and I just put it all together and actually they got the concept. They like clicked with what it was trying to do. So, yeah, that's how that happened. Yeah, and it worked out pretty well. You you sold a copy or two of that one, so uh, that was pretty good uh, for everybody, I think. All right, let's uh, let's switch gears. Let's talk about one of my favorite games of all time, a game that I played years ago. Like I played it at a convention, and it's one of the few games I've ever played at a convention that I bought immediately because it was so fun. And that is Baron Park. And so, talk to me about that. Were you at the zoo and you're looking around? And you're like, you know what would be even better is if everything here was just a bear. Like all these things were bears and there were no other animals. That'd be so much cooler. Is that where it came from? Tell me about it. Uh, no. Um, so um, the I have to say that the theme of Bear and Park entirely comes from Lookout Games, the publisher. So the theme as I submitted it was a theme park. So each of the polyomino tiles was originally a ride and you're building a theme park. And they were fine with that theme, but a bunch of theme park games had recently been on the market in Germany and had done so well, and they kind of wanted to just try something a bit different. And um, so we naturally started talking about zoos as the next kind of uh, thing to explore. And then one day, um, they kind of just said, we figured it out, bear in park. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, zoo for bears. And I did a bit of Googling and found out, oh, these things actually, like there is, a Baron Park in Germany. There are places that are just bear, you know, preserves essentially. So it was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't know about this, but that sounds interesting and bears are fun. Um, so that's how that happened. Like, yeah, that was them just getting a vibe for what is like a fun, different kind of attractive little theme that was a bit original and a bit quirky. Uh, yeah, so that's that's where that came from. We, I, we just have a bit of a funny moment because they were desperate to have um, koalas in the game. And um, as every good Australian person knows, you know, koalas are not bears. They're marsupials, they're not bears. Uh, and they're just called koalas. And here in one of my games is koala bears. And I thought, oh no, like I'm going to be, the Australian fans are going to eat me alive on this one. So um, thankfully, we ma I managed to get a little uh, disclaimer in the rule that says, uh, koalas are not bears, but they're so cute, we are including them in our park anyway. So so that was a fun little back and forth we had. But yeah, so that was an interesting one. That's an example of a publisher um, kind of instantly clicking with the game and not doing much really at all to the design in development, but taking the theme in a different in a different place and taking the visual style in a different in a different direction. 
Yeah, that's really cool. And so tell me a little bit about the design process. Tell me about anything that you had to figure out as far as like the, the grids and which icons are where and, and you cover them up, but you don't want to cover up too many, but you don't want to cover up too few. And so tell me about any of the, the interesting things that stand out in your mind from the process of actually making that game into what it eventually became. Yeah, so I was playing Patchwork, as everyone was when Patchwork came out. And uh, I also am a huge fan of Blockus and um, Rhino Knetia's Fit and Princes of Florence and a whole lot of games that use uh, polyominoes. Uh, but it was playing um, Patchwork where I thought, you know, oh, polyominoes are kind of having a moment. And I felt like there was a moment for a game like Patchwork that was just entirely focused on them. And they weren't just one element, but they were like, you know, the whole game was about putting them together. So I was like, I want to do a game like this. I just want to do a polyamino game. So it really started out as that, as a challenge. Um, and like I said before, it was thinking about playing games like Patchwork and Blockus and thinking, you know, what is the, the, the really exciting moment of adrenaline in those games? Like, what is the really fun moment? And for me, it's definitely when you place a piece that's just perfect, that fits perfectly. You know, uh, maybe you set it up, but there's a spot on your board and you need the you need the big L and you can get the big L and you pop it in, right? So I wanted to try and make a game that was continually generating those moments of, oh, I made it fit, or oh, this piece is perfect. So the first thing I knew is I wanted to start off with a really small board that group. Um, because if you start off with a big board, um, there are less exact fits you know there are less kind of spots that need precise filling so starting off with a really small grid and then having it grow as you go was like one of the first things i thought of because i really wanted there to be lots of tight spaces you have to fill in um so that was the first thing um and i also knew i wanted lots of smaller regular shapes um like the four size polyomino the tetra the tetris pieces basically um because they it's easy to fit together in a multitude of ways. So there's going to be more moments where you get that little burst of clever puzzling as you kind of slot something in. Um, so they were two things, like really focusing on smaller shapes and smaller boards. Um, and then as I was just playing around with those components, I didn't really have a direction for the game yet. I was just kind of fiddling around. And I remembered an old design of mine, which I put aside, uh, which, was all about building a city uh, with dominoes. And as you placed the domino, it had icons on top of it. And as you covered icons, you got things. And I'd always liked that mechanism, but that game just didn't come together. So I, for whatever reason, I thought, oh, maybe that mechanism could work. So I grabbed that idea and started putting icons on the board. And um, that became the way you got new tiles. And, um, and you bought. Uh, in terms of placing the icons and the ratio and everything, that was just like just huge amount of you know trial and error testing and mapping it out basically. So that that wasn't the, the funnest part of the game. Uh, but um, yeah, that that's sort of that's sort of how I began that design. It's rarely for me, I sort of began with components and then just thought I'm going to make a game out of these components. That's fun. Very cool. And you bring up an interesting point as far as like becoming a more experienced 
game designer. And one of the best parts about that is that you build up this backlog of things that didn't work that then you can hopefully go back to at some point down the road. When you're just starting out, you have like three ideas. And so when those don't work, you can't be like, oh, yeah, well, I had this really interesting idea seven years ago. And if I put that into this, it actually fixes it and it it makes it work. Okay, good. You don't have that. And so it just takes time. It takes dedication. It takes effort and and just building up experience and building up a lot of things that are broken and don't work or failed or got rejected for whatever reason. But then you can go back to them and and, and put them into games. Basically recycle, bring them back to life. And I think that's that's just a huge thing that comes with uh, time and lots of effort. Uh, but let's uh, let's switch gears. Let's talk about gizmos. Now, were you playing Potion Explosion? And you're like, ooh, I can make a game of marbles. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, uh, I was, 0 for 3 I right had, now. <laughs> I had played it. I had played it, and I liked it, but I wasn't thinking at all in, in terms of the components at all in the case of gizmos. So gizmos was pitched as a card game, um, not a board game with a big marble dispenser at all. Uh, so what I was trying to do with Gizmos is, well, ever since I started designing, I've wanted to make like a civilization game, but one that's basically playable <clears throat> in an hour. And, you know, you've heard this Holy Grail before. Everyone wants a light civilization game. But it's something I've always been interested in. And I thought I'd like to do a card game that's 45 minutes or an hour, but somehow like makes you feel like you've built up a, a civilization. Um, that's something I've just always been drawn to as an idea. So one year, about it would be about five years ago now, I was deciding to kind of put some time into that. And I came up with this card game where every card was just a technology and every card gave you some new ability or a new power. And I was just fiddling around with this and I realized that all the most exciting technologies in the game were ones which boosted uh, some other action. And so, you know, as you played, your actions were getting stronger and stronger and triggering each other. And um, yeah, they were the techs that were the funnest. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to strip out everything else and focus on those technologies. Um, and quite quickly, I was like, oh, this isn't about uh, civilizations anymore. This is about inventions. It just felt like each of these cards was a cool invention I created. So that was the game. So it was a, it was just a card game. It was 120 cards or so. Uh, half the cards were the resources, half the cards were the inventions. And um, I was, I took it to a convention and I was playing with some people and I played it with Eric Lang, who worked at Simon at the time. And he played it and he, I was like, ah, oh, I've got a card game, but that really is not what, you know, your company is looking for. They have, you know, games with massive table presence and miniatures. But he's like, no, I'll play a card game kind of thing. So I just plonked it down. And as we were playing, I just, you could tell some light bulb was going off in his head. And, um, yeah, he quite quickly just sort of had this idea. He's like, you know what this game needs? He needs a Marvel with that. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he just thought, uh, if this, if we just replace this draft of cards, um, of different colored cards, with some other component that's fun and physical and tactile, um, and kind of plays off this idea of machines, um, we could really just elevate this game, the table presence, but also just the the tactical feeling of play. And I was like, 
went, okay, okay. So he kind of took it away. And yeah. And so his team at, at, at CMON kind of came up with this concept of turning the resource cards into marbles, having a marble dispenser. And yeah, I didn't quite know what to think of it at first, but after testing it, I realized the best thing about it is it's sped up gameplay. Because like, you know, in Ticket to Ride, uh, the most annoying part of Ticket to Ride is managing that draft of cards, that roll of cards. You know, every turn someone takes one or two and then you have to flip them and who's flipping them and I don't know. That's always like that upkeep thing. You notice it, especially if you play one Ticket to Ride on the app. But anyway, it took that out because you just pick a marble and then they roll down to refill themselves. So it actually took like 10 minutes off the game. I couldn't believe it. Um, anyway, so that's sort of how Gizmos went from a card game to, to what it is now. And we did a whole lot of other development on it too. That's the game that I think has changed the most post signing it. Uh, and it's because Eric just kind of got a vision for what it could be. And we just kind of spent a long time um, trying to, to get it to that place. Gotcha. It's so cool to see how games come to life, you know, to see behind the curtain and, and hear about uh, different, like kind of random chance. Like you just happened to sit down and play a game with Eric going, and then it turned into this whole new idea and it had all these new components. And it's, it's just cool how uh, things work out that way sometimes, but let's, uh, let's switch gears. Let's talk about the adventure game series. Now this is a, a series of games that you're actually working with other designers. And so I'm curious to hear maybe from that angle uh, of what it's like to work on games with co-designers and you're kind of bouncing ideas around and figuring things out. And so tell me about how you got to be involved with that project and then what it's like to work with other great designers on it. Yeah, so uh, Matthew Dunstan, who is my main co-designer on that series, uh, we were friends before, like I was just starting out as a designer and he wasn't a designer. We were just friends in a game group. And um, so, it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting that, I mean, he moved to to the UK and now is in Europe, but, um, it's interesting. We've taken kind of similar paths, uh, but we don't live in the same country anymore. But anyway, when he comes back to Australia, we often get together and just kind of brainstorm ideas. And yeah, one of the times we did that, it was right when like time stories had kind of emerged. And there was suddenly, all of a sudden, there was this sense of like, oh, like Euro games and um, modern board games can fully embrace narrative, you know? I, I'm not sure why that hadn't happened before. And I feel like that year we had Time Stories and uh, Pandemic Legacy was coming out. And it just felt like, oh, narrative was something just really fresh to kind of to explore for designers like us. So we just sat around thinking, you know, what can we do? What What's the sort of, um, what can we bring into that kind of narrative space of game? And we both immediately thought back to playing point-and-click computer games in, like, the 90s, um, like King's Quest, and I was a big... I had the uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade point-and-click adventure. And we just really loved the open-world exploration, the ability to combine any item with anything and get a funny result. And so we kind of gave ourselves the challenge over the next couple of months, let's each try and come up with a system that could maybe create that sort of uh, experience on the tabletop. Anyway, um, we came up. He came up with a system. I came up with a system, which is I've never 
design like this before, but we both kind of took it in two different directions. And uh, there was a convention coming up and Matt, uh, who's much braver than me, he kind of just walked into a massive publisher meeting and kind of just said, here's two systems. Like, we want to make a narrative game. What do you think? And um, they were like, oh, well, this is, this is Cosmos. And they were like, oh, we are actually looking for a narrative system to begin a series of narrative games. Let's keep going down this rabbit hole. So they sort of encouraged us to, to hone what we were working on and to come up with something really solid. And um, so, yeah, a lot of the work up front was just how is this system, which we knew from the beginning would go over multiple games, how... How is this system going to, to just really click and be simple, but yet, yet create a lot of surprising moments? So that was the genesis. It was us kind of both attacking a problem and then presenting, you know, sort of half-finished solutions to Cosmos and then working with them and their team to kind of hone it into a, a really robust but simple thing. Um, so that's how it started. But then each adventure game is sort of its own story of collaboration as well because there's a lot that goes into, into making one. Very cool. All right. So what would be your advice for other people looking to co-design that are finding maybe it's a little bit easier, maybe it's got some advantages as far as working with other people. What would be your best advice for those folks that are working with other designers? So I'm not the most experienced um, co-designer. So I've done it a bit and I'm doing it increasingly, but I'm not you know, it's not my default. Uh, I'm usually, I usually design by myself. So, you know, there'd be better perspectives out there than mine. But I guess I would say um, every collaboration is really different and it works differently and sort of has its own life cycle and its own way of happening. And I think that's kind of the point and that's kind of the fun of it is that if you feel like you're going to click with someone else or there's someone else you'd like to work with, I think you just kind of have to start and see what happens and see how you work together. Uh, do you pick a design back and forth between you? Do you work on the same idea simultaneously and see what you get? Does one person present an almost finished thing to you to finish off? Or does one person present a, a really vague idea for you to turn into a first stage prototype? Like, there's so many ways to work. And I think the best part of collaboration is getting stretched and taken outside your comfort zone and, and, and someone taking you to a slightly different place. And um, I think you just got to kind of let that happen with each collaborator and see where it goes and sort of lean into their strengths and let your strengths come to the fore. So, yeah, if you find you lean towards a certain aspect of the process, um, maybe collaboration is a chance where you get to just fully just do that, you know, and, and let someone else do the boring stuff you don't like. Like, there's lots of ways it can work, um, but I always find there's something new to learn from each collaboration. And you sort of, yeah, you stretch a different muscle. Um, so, yeah, my one piece of advice would be don't go in with any sort of preconceptions of how it's going to work. Sort of let it, like any relationship, uh, see if you can let it evolve a bit naturally. Very cool. All right, let's switch gears. Let's talk about Imhotep. And what's interesting about this one is you designed it, and it was really good with four players. And then you ended up later designing a dual version, a two-player 
version that's also highly regarded. So it's almost the, the opposite of what you do with Sushi Go. Sushi Go, you created a game and then made a bigger version, but Imhotep, you made the game and then made a smaller version. And so tell me a little bit about the that game and its design, but then also like what it was like to turn it into a two-player game. Yeah, so Imhotep is actually one of my first sort of finished designs, actually. So I actually designed it in 2010, um, and I entered it in a game design competition um, in Venice, in Italy. And um, it got second place, which is really exciting. And so I got put uh, in front of a bunch of publishers after that. And it took five years for it to kind of find a home with a publisher. And yeah, so that was like a, a long time and probably the longest between sort of submission and publication for me. And so it was really rewarding when it kind of landed at Cosmos and they totally got it and they did some great kind of development at the end there. And um, yeah, it's it just a strange one. And so when I think back, that's so long ago that I designed it, but it was one of those designs that just, uh, it just kind of in a way fell in my lap because I, as I said before, I was thematically just wanting to design a game about building the pyramids. And I knew I wanted really big wooden blocks. <laughs> that was kind of all I had in my head. Like you could actually see the pyramids on the table. And I started um, just tinkering with this idea. And I thought, well, you know, we don't know much about how the pyramids were made, but we know that stones were quarried. And then we know the stones were transported to the site and then they were built. And so I just began with that structure of, okay, you need to quarry stones, you need to transport the stones, and then you need to place the stones. And um, so I made little sleds for the stones to go on. I made little fight boards for where the stones were built and, and a little quarry. And in early tests, I suddenly realized that this emergent thing was, was happening where, you know, what stone I put my sled on and then who decided to move that sled to what site was really interesting and tense and kind of where all the fun was. <laughs> It wasn't so much about building the pyramids as it was about that mechanism that kind of came came about almost by chance of no one owns these sleds and they can go anywhere. So where are they going to go? And what order are the stones on in these sleds for when you build them? And so, yeah, that was kind of a spark that just the whole design kind of flowed out of that. So, yeah, so that was Imhotep. And, um, yeah, it was actually quite a lot later. So 2015 and then a few, maybe three years later, Cosmos completely came to me and said, would you be interested in developing a, a two-player version for our two-player line? Uh, and I was so excited by that because I love the Cosmos two-player line. And it was, yeah, playing those games was one of the first things I did when I got into the hobby. So that was really cool. Um, but I also kind of was like, oh, Imhotep for me, it's not, it's not best at this for sure, but it worked. Like to me, it works as a two-player game particularly if you know it really well. The two-player game can be really cutthroat. Um, so I was like, oh, what, what would I do? Like, you know, I don't just want to re-release the two-player edition. And so, yeah, that was a, that was a really interesting design challenge because I, I knew it had to be different, uh, you know, for it to just need to exist. But it also needed to feel like Imhotep. It needed to have that feeling of um, conniving moves, uh, taking things in unexpected places, and um, it was an it was an example of something I had been working on 
happening to kind of slot in. So I, I was working on a on a weird uh, card drafting game where you it was sort of like a worker placement combined with card drafting game with this weird greed worker placement. And one day it just clicked that that felt quite similar to the core of uh, the core experience you get playing Emotep. So I just I just experimented with it and it became the core of the of the two player design. So another example of where yeah, just having a bunch of designs floating around often helps you because you'll have little tools lying about in your notebook or in your prototypes that you can draw on when you need them. Very cool. Well Phil, anything else? Anything else that stands out on any of your games? That you've designed or just your process in general that you want to want to highlight um for me I, I i think i'm always when i design uh thinking about <clears throat> my audience and the players and who i'm designing for and the experience i want them to have and i'm also thinking about sort of new players discovering games and sort of walking them welcoming them in through my game. Um, that the more I design, the more what drives me is designing for people, for other people. Um, so I guess I just would say to anyone out there who's designing and who's maybe a bit stuck in a rut or not quite sure where to go, um, I guess I would just say, think about your audience and think about what it is you want to deliver for them, what it is you want them to get out of your game. Um, because I think at the end of the day, the thing which inspires you to keep going and gives you energy is seeing people enjoy what you've created. Um, so focusing on your audience, focusing on those playing your game and, and the joy you want to give them is what keeps me going and uh, is what has gotten me through some kind of big patches of writer's block as well. So, yeah, that would sort of be if I have a closing word. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's go into closing thoughts. What would you tell people, tell listeners, uh, encouraging them? You know, a lot of designers listen to this show, they're just starting out. A lot of designers listen to this show, they've been doing it for a long, long time. But what would be your words of encouragement to, like you're saying, to go, you know, going through these kind of times where you're, the ideas maybe don't flow as easily or, or you're struggling or you're trying to figure this thing out, you're trying to persevere. What would be your words of encouraging, encouragement? Well, one um, phrase I find I say to myself all the time, is the cliche, you've got to break some eggs to make an omelet. Um, because the amount of discarded designs I have <clears throat> in my notebooks and in my prototype cells is, you know, in the, in the hundreds, you know, a lot of things are just thrown away. And early in a design career, each one of those um, games you toss feels like a failure. It feels like an error. Um, but with the more time and the more experience you get, you realize that each of those games, not only did you learn something from what didn't work, but you actually have made something. You've like made somewhere in that broken design is some collection of ideas that you know didn't work in that configuration or didn't work in that setting or that game, but you still made them and they're still kind of sitting there. And uh, it so often happens uh, as I go on, that little ideas I've had in the past um, re-emerge. 
uh, we talked about in Baron Park, how a whole like discarded mechanism sort of came back. Um, I often think of Sushi Go, uh, which was quite a quick game for me to, to design. In hindsight, it was me taking every set collection mechanism I'd come up with in the past, in the previous three years that had flopped in a game that didn't work and kind of assembling them all in a game that was working. Um, so you never know where, when uh, stuff you work on will come back to help you. So every kind of piece of energy you expend in game design, I don't think is wasted, even if the game goes in the bin ultimately. So I hope that's somewhat encouraging <laughs> because I know when I started out uh, and it was a slow start that, yeah, it felt defeating to, to put a game completely aside. But that's really not the point. The point is that you you made something and that something goes on even if it doesn't get released. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's so important, especially for new designers to know that even the really experienced designers, the, the folks out there with a ton of games under their belts and, and, and lots of games on the market and coming out and going to Kickstarter and doing really well, they have so many ideas and prototypes and, and games that even made it to playtesting and, and doing really well and games that they're even pitching that just ultimately don't turn out. And, and that's okay. I remember I was talking to Richard Launius way back when, and I asked him, I said, how many games have you like fully designed that then just never ended up going anywhere? Not like ideas, but like full games that you know just didn't end up getting published. And he said, I don't know, man, maybe, maybe like a thousand, probably more than a thousand. And it's like, oh man, that's... So many, but he's been designing games for a long, long time. So that makes sense. But it's so important to know that, especially like I said, when you're when you're just starting out. Well, Phil, this has been excellent. Where can people find you? Do you have any games you want to tell people about that are coming out soon? Anything like that? Yeah, I mean, if you're interested in uh, reading a little bit more about my work, my website, I've sort of written up little brief designers notes for each of my games. So if that is something you want to look at, it's philwalkerharding.com. Um, and yeah, I have a couple of things that are just, you know, release dates are so crazy at the moment. It's hard to know exactly what's out where. Um, but two things that are just kind of in the process of coming out now are Explorers from Ravensburger, which is sort of a flip and write game where you're exploring a, a, a modular map. So if you like my game Silver and Gold, this is kind of like the next step up from that in a way. So that's Explorers. And then uh, from Matago, is a party game I uh, really enjoyed working on called Platypus. And it's kind of my entry into the code name, just one kind of style of, of uh, word game. So those two things, yeah, I'm really excited to see how they kind of land with audiences. Awesome. Well, Phil, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with those interesting games coming out and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks, it was really good to chat. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?